0: All right, Romans chapter 5, he begins in verse 1, recounting the blessings that ours in justification. He already demonstrated justification beginning in the latter part of chapter 3 and going through 4. And now in 5, he says, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace. And then he gives us a great list of things. He comes down to verse 8, he said, God commendeth his love toward us. Verse 9, he says, Much more then. And then he gives us another list of blessings. And then in verse 11, he says, And not only that, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We pointed out to you that most all modern Bibles take this word atonement and translate it as reconciliation. When I went to college, they told me that this was an improper translation in the King James Bible, that it should not be atonement, it should be reconciliation. Well, this is the only time in the New Testament, in the English Bible, that the word atonement appears. Interesting thing, the other night, Wednesday night, we were having the meeting, I looked in the back of the songbook for verses on the blood of Christ, and there were none listed. It said, blood of Christ, see atonement. So I looked up and all the verses that deal with the blood of Christ were listed under the heading of the atonement of Christ. In fact, most of the songs there dealt with and used the word atonement. Christ has for sin atonement made. Hallelujah, hallelujah. When I was in college and being taught that this word atonement was improper, I was being taught that in a theology class under the heading the atonement of Christ. Now, <laughs> You know, (laughs) there's a mouse in the woodshed, there's a brown recluse in the library, (laughs) there's a snake in the potato bin. There's some kind of problem there when uh, the theology books are packed with the atonement of Christ, and our songs are full of the atonement of Christ, and we have special days when we celebrate the atonement of Christ, but it's an improper translation. It should never appear in our New Testament, they tell us. Well, now, this being the only time that it appears, why is the word that's normally translated reconciliation here tumble? Can't go into the detail here. You can look in my commentary. But we find that there are two things. There's first in the Old Testament under animal blood, there is an atonement made. That atonement is what happens when the blood of the animal is shed. The atonement is made. The payment is made. God sees it. Then... Following the atonement, when the blood of that atonement is applied before God, there is reconciliation. That is, the sinner is reconciled to God by means of the atonement. Now, reconciliation cannot occur without atonement. An atonement that didn't follow through with reconciliation would be useless. So it takes the both of them to have a complete transaction. Now, in the Old Testament, there was an atonement. They tell us that it means covering. Well, out of the many times that it's used in the Old Testament, only one time can it be used covering. And that's when they pitched the ark within and without, which is the word, same word, atoned the ark within and without. In other words, they covered it with pitch. In the Old Testament, they were covered. They were atoned with. ...from their sin by the blood of the animals, and then a reconciliation, we're told, occurred. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we find in the book of Hebrews that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we find then that Christ came to die for our sins, to be the Lamb of God, as John said, that taketh away the sin of the world. And so we find that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins... We find that the blood of animals did not permanently atone for sins, that that was a temporary atonement. In fact, it was a temporary reconciliation. But now in the book of Romans, Paul tells us about a justification by faith. And then he said, now we being justified, that is, existing in this state of a justification, pointing out to his listeners that the gospel of Christ is superior to the law, that it's superior to the Old Testament atonement, that it's superior to any other religious system. He said, not only that, not only that, he said, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, verse 10, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, and not only so, in addition to that, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now at this time, with the coming of Christ, received the atonement. In other words, he has linked all that Christ did to these past Old Testament sacrifices by saying now, at this time, in Christ, at no other time but now, in his finished work, we, of all things, wonder, marvel of all things, we have now, actually received that atonement that was only foreshadowed and predicted and typed in these Old Testament sacrifices. Right now, we've received it. Now, if you took the word atonement out here, we've now received the reconciliation. Then you have a whole string of Old Testament types of atonement and no fulfillment. You have God pointing to an atonement that never occurs. He just jumps it and goes right to a reconciliation. But rather, the way it's translated here, we find that there, in fact, was a real atonement in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, we've got more than just an atonement. Our sins are actually removed far away. The Bible uses different terms to describe the effect of Christ's work. It speaks of our sins being buried in the depths of the sea. It speaks of our sins being put behind his back. It speaks of our sins of him remembering no more. It speaks of our sins as being covered over. By the blood of Christ. Now, I don't see any inferiority in one over the other. In other words, one might argue, well, I can't say my sins were put behind his back because if that were true, then he could turn around and see them. So I don't like that. I believe that he remembers them no more. Somebody else says, well, I, that, that means he's got a short memory. And if he remembers them no more, then he won't remember he saved us. So I don't like that. So, I mean, there's all kinds of little flaws and loopholes you might find in what analogies God has chosen to use but I'm not going to find a flaw in God telling me that we have in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ received an atonement which has covered me over like the ark was. That's good enough for me. That means that when the flood waters come and the wrath of God comes pouring down that I'm going to be born up and saved from the wrath of God because I've been atoned By the blood of Jesus Christ. That sounds like a real good analogy to me. I'm not going to throw it out. And by the way, I'm going to keep singing it. If you want some humor, take those songs that deal with the atonement. Take them out and stick the word reconciliation in there. And see what kind of effect you're going to get. Now, he says, Wherefore, as but one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, Verse 12 through verse 21 is going to be a comparison of Christ and Adam. Verse 18, 19 says, Therefore as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men unto condemnation. Even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So we find this contrast of the one over against the other. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So what the Bible is going to point out to us here in this chapter is that the ruin to which Adam brought us, so great is that ruin, that so the salvation to which Christ has brought us is far greater. That what Adam did in bringing us to ruin, Christ did much more in bringing us to. To salvation. That's going to be the theme of this section. Now viewing it in its context, we find a lot of comparisons here. There are eight contrasts in this section. One, he contrasts Adam to Christ. He contrasts Adam's disobedience to Christ's obedience. He contrasts the sin of Adam to the righteousness of Christ. He contrasts the law, which was added to the grace of God, which superseded it. He contrasts the condemnation under the law to the justification under Christ. He contrasts the death that came into the world through Adam to the life that we will receive in the future at our resurrection through Christ. And he contrasts the offense of Adam to the free gift of Christ. And he contrasts the reign of death that came on the world in Adam to the believer's reign in life that is ours in Christ Jesus And then he names four reigns. Death reigns because of Adam's sin. Sin reigns. Then grace reigns in Christ. And the believers reign in life. And then he used this term much more. He used it five times. He said much more we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's in verse 9. He said, much more we shall be saved by his life, verse 10. Much more the gift abounded, verse 15. Much more the believer shall reign, verse 17. And much more did grace reign, verse 20. These much more's indicate that Paul is excited about what God has given us. And he himself is impressed when he starts giving this list. That God has not only done this, but he's done much more. It reminds me of some of those old commercials I used to see on Television, where for 1995 they would give you a Ginsu knife or something, you know, and or some kind of grinder, or chopper, or, or peeler or something. And not only that, but you get this, and you're still not convinced to buy yet. And they said, in addition to that, we're going to give you if you order right now. And they got something else. And not only that, but if you order now, we're going to give you this. And you think that's all? No, we got something else and something else. And finally, you think, well, that's a whole pickup truckload of stuff for 1995, and you order it all, and it arrives and you can't use any of it. Now, what he's given us here, we can use every bit of it. He, he starts off with something that's worth it, you know. He starts off with the great blessings of justification. He said no of that, but he said we have access by faith into his grace wherein we stand. He said, not only that, we rejoice in the tribulation. He said, not only that, tribulation works patience. Not only that, the patience works experience. And the experience works hope. And he said, not only that, the hope keeps us from being ashamed. And he says, and the Holy Ghost is spread abroad in our hearts by the love of God. He said, Christ died for the ungodly. Much more than that, we're justified by His blood. We'll be saved by His life. When we're enemies, we're reconciled. Not only that, he said, but we now join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we've now received the atonement. And then he explained. That reconciliation atonement, saying that by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then he's going to show us how that Christ comes along and undoes all that was done in Adam. Now, if you go back in your natural family tree, you go to your daddy, you go to your granddaddy, your great great granddaddy, and so forth, and you go all the way back, and finally you come back to granddaddy Adam. All of us have. All humans on this earth have Adam as our great-granddaddy. Great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. Great now, when Adam sinned against God, God kicked him out of the garden and separated him from the tree of life. Which tree of life, the Bible said that if he ate it, he would live forever. That tree of life was a physical tree, had nothing to do with obedience. It had nothing to do with righteousness. Righteousness. That tree was as much literal as a tomato plant is. As much literal as any herb that grows on this earth today. And it functioned in exactly the same way. It did not take the presence of God to make the tree of life work. It did not take righteousness or holiness to make the tree of life work. The tree of life was a natural food that when eaten affected the human body in some way that kept it from aging and from dying. It was a tree that would bring healing and life to the body. Now, that was such a literal and a real tree that if it were possible today to go and find a seed from the tree of life somewhere and plant it, you could build your a big fence around it and not tell anybody. And you could go out about, I don't know if it would take once a day or once a week or once a month, what it would take, but you go out and you munch the fruit on that tree. And folks would say, well, you're sure looking good lately. In fact, you're beginning to look younger. And after four or five years, they'd say, you know, your, your gray's gone away in your hair. Your wrinkles are going away. What are you doing? So I'm just taking a little herb a little along the way, you know. And then after about 15 or 20 years, you'd get to looking around about 30 years old. And that's where you'd stay. You wouldn't get the sicknesses and disease other people get. If you broke your arm, you got there and eat that stuff in just a few days, you'd get well. If you've got a lethal bullet wound, just crawl out there and eat from that tree of life. And that thing would begin to heal up real fast. Your body would begin to restore itself. And after 100 years, you'd still be around 30 years old. After 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, you wouldn't die. Why? Because you've got the herb that God made that keeps the body alive forever. You see, even after Adam's sin, God said, Let's get him out of the garden lest he eat the tree of life and live forever. So the, the tree is going to be placed back on either side of the river of life in heaven. And the Bible tells us for those that are going to be on the new earth, the Jews that are resurrected, that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That is, those people who are still on the earth will make a little herbal tea. When you go over to visit, they say, would you like a cup of tea? And they've gotten to pull a few leaves off the tree of life, just a little tea out of it. And you just say, my, I do feel better now. I believe I could go a little longer. And it heals the nations, heals all the sicknesses, heals all the diseases, and restores everyone to the condition that Adam was in. And keeps them that way throughout eternity. As long as they're allowed to eat of the tree of life. Now, when Adam sinned, God kicked him out of the garden. Adam left the garden without that element that would keep him alive forever. And the Bible says through Adam, death entered the world. Death entered the world. So the Bible says, and death passed upon all men. That word passed is a, is a process of passing. It's a, it's a history of passing. It is passing as a parade passes, as time passes, as the calendar's pages turn. Death passed upon all men. He says... Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world. Only one man sinned here, not everyone. And death by sin, death came as a result of Adam's sin. Now, some people say, well, that's spiritual death. The term spiritual death never appears in the Bible. It's a non-entity. It does not exist. The Bible speaks of the spirits of unsaved people repeatedly. It speaks of the spirits of the unregenerate. All people have a human spirit and all spirits are functioning. There's no such thing as a dead spirit. Someone say, well, what I mean by dead spirit is a spirit separate from God. Why single out the spirit? Is the spirit more separate from God than the body? Is the spirit more separate from God than the soul, than the mind, than the emotions? You see, every aspect of our being is separate from God. There'd be no point in singling out the spirit and say the spirit's dead, but my body's alive. No, every part of our being is separated from God as a result of Adam's sin. And nowhere does the Bible speak of a dead spirit or a spirit that is spiritually dead. Nowhere does it speak of that. The Bible says death passed upon all men. It's talking about one thing and one thing only, and that's physical death. Someone would argue, yes, but inherent within that is, this, um, is our sinfulness. It says nothing about sinfulness passing on all men. It says death passed upon all men. You see, well, what that means is we have a sinful nature. The term never appears anywhere in the scripture. Again, that's something made up. There's no such entity. The Bible is clear. Death passed upon all men. And he says, and so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. Now, we pointed out last week that when he says, for that all have sinned, if he's saying that all sinned when Adam sinned, if all were in Adam and so participated in Adam's sin, then in fact all are guilty today of sin. That is, a baby that's just born is guilty of Adam's sin. That is, when the baby is born, the baby is to blame because the baby sinned in Adam, for all have sinned, if that's what it says. That means that the baby is born deserving of the wrath of God. We're not talking about theology now. We're talking about that little one day old baby that you hold in your lap. That you put to your breast. Can you look down in that baby's face and tell me that you believe that that baby deserves the burning hot wrath and damnation of God. That that baby deserves to be held out over the flames of hell and as God laughs. Drops off into the flames because the baby finally got the punishment it deserved. Do you believe that kind of nonsense? I will to tell you 99% of the Christian world profess to believe that. More than 99% of them profess to believe that. They profess to believe that babies come into the world guilty of sin and worthy of the fires of hell. Now I know that when a baby comes into the world, the baby is separated from God. I know that when the baby comes into the world, the baby is without the presence of God, without the spirit of God, without the divine life of God inside the baby. I know that when the baby comes into the world, it is disadvantaged in that it does not have the resources of spirit that comes from God to overcome these bodily drives. I know that the baby is separated from God and is going to end up eventually in the lake of fire as an adult. But I don't believe that when a three-year-old dies, he goes to hell. I don't believe that when a four-year-old dies, he goes to hell. I don't believe that God torments anyone until that person is personally deserving of the fires of hell. Until that person has personally sinned. Furthermore, if this passage is saying that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Then what it's saying is that in fact we all deserve the wrath of God and Adam didn't bring death on us, we brought it on ourselves. It's not saying that we're dying because Adam sinned. It's saying we died because we sinned. And if it's saying that, then the point Paul is trying to prove has been destroyed. His point is going to be that just as Adam sinned and brought death on all, Christ obeyed and brought righteousness on all. He's laying a foundation for proving that. He's laying a foundation for showing you that your salvation has nothing to do with what you do. He's laying a foundation to show you that your salvation is not based on anything you do, but it's based on what Christ did for you. Now, as a foundation, he's going to show you that you're dying today. Now hear me now, Watch this. Your dying today has nothing to do with anything you do. Your dying is based on what Adam did. Now, he's not talking about sinfulness. He's talking about dying. You say, but what about those people who sinned in the days of Noah? Weren't they killed by God? He's not talking about capital punishment. He's talking about physical death. He's not talking about the execution of a sinner. He's talking about the aging process that results in death or the disease process that results in death. Now, that we know is universal. All people, all babies, fetuses, Have this death hanging over them. The whole point of this is how do you explain this death reigning over the human race? How do you explain it? Do you explain it by something the human race did? If you do, he's got no analogy. If your answer is, I cannot explain how death reigns, it's nothing we did, it must be what Adam did. Yes, that's what it is. It's what Adam did that's brought this universal death. Why, if it's what Adam did, then we're not dying for anything we did. We're dying for something he did. You see, that's my point. We're dying for something he did. Well, if that's the case, then Christ is similar to that because he's going to give us life, not for something we do, but for something he did. And that's going to be his point. So you see why it's very important at this point not to destroy his foundation, By jumping to the conclusion that somehow you and I became guilty or depraved or sinful or did something that was deserving of hell at that point when Adam sinned. It's by confusing this term death with sin that people get mixed up. It's by confusing death passed upon all men with saying, okay, sinfulness passed upon all men. It doesn't say that. Let's let the Bible speak as it speaks. Death passed upon all men. Now when he says, for that all have sinned, That is a statement of what happened as a result of this. In other words, when death passed from all men, all men became separated from God. And that resulted in all men personally sinning, which he's already proven in chapter 3. Now, the rest of the context of this chapter will bear that interpretation out. Verse 11, notice this. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there's no law. Now, the wages of sin is death. He said, from the time of the creation, sin was in the world up until the time of the law given. But he said, sin is not imputed where there's no law. In other words, no one under Noah, during the time of Enoch, none of those people had the death sentence imputed to them because of their sin. He said, but didn't they die, that's not the point. We're talking about receiving the sentence of death. In other words, let's say it this way. Receiving the sentence of mortality. No one received a sentence of mortality upon them prior to the law. Because there was no law that said, If you do this, you'll come under the sentence of mortality. There was no such law. The only time that was there was under Adam. God said to Adam, In the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Not die in sin. Not become spiritual death. Die. Mortality. It will end your physical life. You say, but he didn't die. So it must have been spiritual death. Well, he would have if a lamb hadn't died in his place. He would have. God should have killed him. It wasn't that he was going to just get sick from the food he ate and die. It wasn't that something was going to happen in him and Adam just explode. If he died, it had to have been God killing him. It had to have been God executing that promise upon him. God did not execute that promise upon him because Adam was spared by the skins, by the lambs that were killed, and the skins, I assume they were lambs, and the skins that were placed upon him. Verse 13, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin's not imputed where there's no law. He's just laying a foundation for what he's about to say. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Now, Even though that's true, that sin's not imputed, where there's no law, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. He's saying that death did reign. When he says reigned, he's talking about like a king sitting on a throne that has each subject and every subject without exception under his control. Death had all subjects under its control. From Adam to Moses, death reigned. There wasn't a person born in the world that wasn't under the sentence of death. The sentence of mortality. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Listen to this, here it is. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So those people from Adam to Moses had not sinned like Adam did. Now if that statement in verse 12, for that all have sinned, was a statement of the complicity of the human race and Adam's sin, then this statement would be a contradiction. It said they had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. You see that? The point is, if they didn't sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression, that is under explicit law that calls for the death sentence, why did they all die? You say, well, some of them died like God killed them in the flood. Some of them died like Sodom and Gomorrah because he burned them up. That's not the sentence of mortality. That's executing them. What he's getting at is how is it that the babies died before God ever brought fire or judgment? How is it that people died from sickness and disease? How is it that people just got old and passed away? How is it that death so thoroughly, without exception, reigned over the whole human race, infants included, up until the time of the law? Now, after the law, he's it would be a different argument because the law did say, the soul that sinneth it shall die. The law did bring a sentence in there, but... So he's wanting to deal particularly with that time period when someone couldn't throw that argument in there that the law sentenced men to death individually. See, Because there was no law to the individual or to the nation or to the human race that brought death sentence other than the one that Adam lived under. He said, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though them did not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who is Adam is the figure Of him that was to come. Adam figures, he pictures, he he is a likeness of Christ who is to come. But not as the offense. Now he's going to compare Adam and Christ two ways. He's going to compare Adam and Christ by showing how they differ. And he's going to compare Adam and Christ by showing how they're alike. His point is not really to show a link between the two that one is dependent upon the other. His point is to show us about Christ by giving us a familiar illustration. That is as far as Adam goes. Other than the fact that Christ undid what Adam did in his work. So he says, but not as the offense, that's Adam's offense of sinning against God by eating the fruit of the tree, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. He's saying this, the offense and the free gift are different. The offense and the free gift are different. He says, for if through the offense of one, many be dead. Now that's true, right? Through the offense of one, many be dead. Again, we'll go back to verse 12. For that all have sinned. How many sinned? One. Right? So when he says, for all that have sinned, that has to be expressing the result or the fruit of that one act of Adam, not the act itself. He's not incorporating all into the act of sin. He says, For of the offense of one, many be dead. Much more. Now there's that much more again. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So he said they're different in this way. The offense brought Death. But the gift brought life abounding unto many. Now, they're similar in that what one did, it affected the many. What the one did, affected all. But they're different in that what the one did, Adam did, brought death. What Christ did, brought life. So they're like in that they both affected all. They're different in the effect itself. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. He talked about the gift in verse 15. He said, now the one that sinned and the gift differ also. He said, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. What he's uh, pointing out here is that Adam's one act brought condemnation. But when Christ came to bring justification, he was not just undoing one act. It was many offenses at, at that point. In other words, with the coming of the law, the death penalty was enforced over every single individual now with the coming of the law. In other words, each one of us has now sinned in our own right separate from Adam and have come under explicit law which calls for our death having sinned. Until Moses, that was not so. Those who died, died for the sin of the one man. Now you and I are still... Under the sentence of mortality because of what Adam did, that's not been lifted. But, we in addition to that, if that were not so, we'd still be under a death sentence because we have come under explicit law which says that if you sin, you'll die. So, like Adam, we have done our own individual, original sin and come under a penalty of death. Are you following this? I mean, this is a lot of good stuff here. This is wonderful. I love this theology. I love, I love the way this is laid out. I mean, it's a beauty. It's a, he's, he's building a case here, folks. It's marvelous. Now, we're just hitting the highlights, by the way. We, we could really dig in deep on this thing, and I have. And if you'll take my commentary, you'll, uh, you can see a lot more on it. He says in verse 17, For by one man's offense, he's going to compare them alike now, For by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of life shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Notice he does not contrast the death of Adam to the spiritual life of Christ. He does not contrast the death of Adam to justification. He does not say, okay, in Adam we receive physical death, so in Christ we get spiritual life. That's not what he said. You've got to look at it closely. He said, for by one man's offense, death reigned by one. One man sinned, death became a reigning thing. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of life shall reign in life by one. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about our state of reigning in life like we used to reign in death. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam's offense, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. The result was condemnation upon all because of the offense of one, that condemnation unto death. Even so, by the righteousness of one, now, here's the complete comparison. By the righteousness of one, who's the one that was righteous? Jesus. It's not me. No one in the human race has ever been righteous. Totally, completely righteous. Just Jesus. So, as one man's offense and sin affected all, one man's righteousness and obedience affects all. Why, if you took this out of the gospel, this passage this chapter this half of this chapter if you took this out of the Bible you'd be taking the cherry out of a chocolate covered cherry (laughs) you'd be taking the wheat out of a loaf of wheat bread I mean if you took this out you'd be taking everything out of the apple leaving the peeling this is the heart Of the Bible right here. By the offense of one judgment came upon all men the condemnation. Even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men. Unto justification of life. What did I do to receive the free gift of Jesus Christ? What did I do to receive the gift of righteousness? Well I simply believed the gospel. Did I participate in any of Christ's work? So that I can become an active participant in his righteousness in some way? Absolutely not. Now, he's contrasting that to how I got my death. Did I do anything in Adam to inherit his death? Did I do anything to become responsible? No. Now, after the law, I did. But he's not talking about that. He's pointing out how it originally came onto the earth. That's his illustration. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now I won't go into the detail on this, but this word made here, if you look it up, is used in the Bible many times like this. That this individual was made to be the governor or made to be the priest. This individual was made this or made that. He's not talking about someone being molded. He's talking about someone being given an office or appointed to a position. So he said, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now I am made righteous in Christ, am I not? Now I know that when you say I'm made righteous in Christ, that you're not saying that I've been made to do everything right. I've not been made to do everything right. But I've been called, 1 Corinthians 5, God made him to be sin. Now there's the word made again. God made him to be sin. How did he make him to be sin? Did he do something sinful? No. But God made him in the place of sin. Made him sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How was I made the righteousness of God? By the gift of righteousness. So in verse 19 he says, For by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, so it's like this much more, Moreover, not only that, but moreover the law entered. So now we're getting to the law. Moreover, the law entered the picture of the stage. The law came on the stage that the offense might abound. What offense? Adam's offense. Adam offended one time and brought death. He said, now moreover, in addition to that, human race, the law came along and entered the scene and the offense abound. How did it abound? God said to Adam, the day you eat there, you'll die. And when Adam slipped off the ledge, he took his posterity with him in his loins. Adam was king of the earth. When he was excommunicated from the kingdom and shipped off to a distant island, all of his posterity was shipped off with Adam and Eve. So when his posterity were born, they were born outside the kingdom in a far land separated from God. So by the offense of one, many were made, but more with the law entered that the offense might abound. So now when the magistrate comes to the island, he finds not only... Is the original Adam still under the curse of sin. But he finds that Adam's descendants having been born. Are also rebels against the kingdom. Also in addition. And so now they're excluded from the kingdom. Not only because of what their great 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 granddaddy did. But they're now excluded from the kingdom. Because they within themselves are unworthy of the kingdom. So the offense abounded. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Amen, amen. So he said, when the law came and sin abounded, the grace of God just jumped a little higher, jumped a little further. When sin rose like the floodwaters, he said, grace rose higher. He said, when judgment came because of our sin, the mercy of God came even deeper and richer and broader and fuller and more powerful. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That, as sin hath reigned unto death. That's the physical death that came on the human race. As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign. And that's a, it's a continuing process of grace reigning through righteousness, that's the righteousness God's given us as a gift, unto eternal life. That eternal life is life without end, life where you never die. That's life that takes the place of Adam's death. By Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I want to confirm this interpretation to you by turning over to chapter 8. We'll close with these thoughts. Chapter 8. He continues this all the way through Romans. In chapter 8, he talks about this sin and death again. Verse 10, he says, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. If you're saved right now, your body is still dead because of sin. Do you know that body you're in is going to die? Still under the curse of Adam. It's going to die. Still there. Bodies dead because of sin. But the spirit is life. Because of the righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. He's talking about a coming day when you get a new body. He talks about the coming hope in verse 20. Verse 21 he says the creature itself. That's the rabbits and the cats and the dogs and the mouse and the coons and the possums and the skunks. The creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption. This is something that has not happened to you as a Christian yet. What he's talking about here is summing up the first eight chapters. He's bringing us to the conclusion of this doctrine in chapter 8. He says that even nature is under a curse... And the creature shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22, he says, We know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto them. You see, all of creation is under the same curse of death that we're under, received in Adam. And not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits, not only they which separates us from the creature, which identifies the creature as the animal and not us, not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, so we're saved. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for, we're waiting for the adoption. You say, you're not yet adopted. We say, I'm adopted, my name's written down. Yes, in one way you are, but not yet. We're waiting for the adoption to wit, that is, the redemption of our body. Your body's not yet been adopted, not yet been taken. And then when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's turn to that. And we'll conclude with this. And when we conclude with that, maybe we'll conclude with another one. Turn to chapter 15 and uh, look at verse uh, 21. He says, For since by man came death. Now this this is the clincher here. For all you people listening to this tape, who already hollered across the room and told your wife, this fellow's a heretic. Read this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by man came death. Same subject. By man came also life. Amen, right? No, that's not what he says. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man, that's Christ, came also the, what? Resurrection of the dead. What's the answer to Adam's death? The resurrection of the dead. The answer to Adam's death is not spiritual life, it's physical resurrection. For as in Adam all died, same Wording we had in Romans 5, right? And Adam all died. How'd they die? Say, well, they died spiritually. Is that right? And so in Christ shall, future tense, all be made alive. You see, you've not yet been, in fact, no one has yet been made alive in Christ. So I've been born again yet, but you had not been made alive yet. Not what he's talking about here. He's talking about resurrected body. Shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. He said it will be a proper order. Christ, the fruits. he's the first one raised from the dead. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. You see, the resurrection, the life that is given in response to the death Adam brought does not occur until the resurrection of the dead. Now God has given us a promissory note of eternal life. I'm saved right now. But yet I'm being saved. And according to scripture, I shall be saved from wrath through him we just read that Romans chapter 5 about verse 10 or 11 we shall be saved from wrath through him at his coming and he said then cometh the end when the kingdoms will be delivered up and so forth now turn to the last part of that chapter he says in verse 44 it is sown a natural body talking about the resurrection of the dead here sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first man is of the earth earthly, the second man is the Lord of heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall, future tense, also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood... That's what Adam had. That's what came into the death sentence. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, neither doth corruption, that's what we are now, we're corruption. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So I'm not corruption, you got pimples, don't you? That's corruption. You have snot, don't you? That's corruption. You get sick, don't you? That's corruption. He said, This corruption must inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, the twinkling of an eye. And he talks about verse fifteen, the corruption twenty fifty four, the corruption puts on incorruption, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. And not yet its coming. O death, where's thy sting? O grave, where's thy victory? 57, thanks be unto God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the final crowning culmination of this salvation is a glorified body and the undoing of the curse of Adam's death on the human race, which we have not yet experienced in his fullness. Now most people take the passage we dealt with today and try to see it as an explanation of how we all got to be sinners. How we all got a sinful nature. Folks, I am mystified. I am absolutely mystified that men much more intelligent than myself, and in some cases men more spiritually minded than me, can end up so slaughtering and abusing the word of God. You've seen it clearly. You've seen it as the word of God presents it. I've not twisted it or warped it. I've taken the meanings of the words as they exist. And I've done it in full knowledge and light of all the theology that's gone before. I've read at least 30 commentaries and on the book of Romans. And I've read only the, the, the best, along with a few few garbage, but I've read the best. I've read Luther and Calvin and Hodge and others like that. I've read them carefully, not one time, but dozens of times. I've marked them, I've underlined them, I've copied them, I've compared them, and I've gone through all these words in Greek, and I've studied carefully for 40 years now. And I find that the word of God is perfect and infallible and beautiful in the King James English, and I seek no other. Now, if you disagree with what I've said, then you better resort to scripture and not to theology, because that's all I'll accept as correction, is the word of God itself. Don't resort to popular opinion. Don't resort to the doctrines that we're supposed to hold, the foundations of faith Tell me what does the Bible say. Show me if what I've said is an error. That it's an error according to the Word of God itself, and I I will read and accept any kind of correction. In fact, I get corrections all the time. People send me stuff in the mail, and you know I read them. I read them and I file them away, and I keep them for future reference. And so I hope people will uh, listen to this tape and and read my books on my commentary on Romans and consider these doctrines. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you now. For the word, we thank you for these things we've studied. Use them, Father, to teach us and encourage us and build us up in the faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll be back here again next Wednesday night for a study of the book of um, John.